Cool. Back once again. This time we're talking about Walter Benjamin's Critique of Violence, which is a pretty important essay in his uh, oeuvre, 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 whatever. Uh, now, a few things to say before then. Um, so Spotify, I learned, only accepts files from, uh, you know, a podcast hosting site if they are MP3s or another kind of file, which I wasn't doing. So I went so long without having my episodes on Spotify uh, and I had no idea why until I finally figured it out. So from now on, those episodes or new episodes will start appearing on Spotify as well in case you, you know, want to find yours there. Or if not, you know, you can still find this on iTunes or pretty much anywhere else. Um, you can follow me on Instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy if you want. Uh, you can also find my Patreon here if you want to contribute to that, which would be great. Help me you know, keep doing this for as long as I can. Uh, and on that note, I'd like to thank Amrit, Anshul, Boz, um, Henrik, James, John, Eust, Julio, Killswitch, Matt, uh, and Paul, who have all been really helpful in keeping this going. Uh, you know, your support is, I can't thank you enough. Uh, now, without further ado, without wasting any more time, let's hop right into this tricky, tricky text. Now, he starts this essay by saying that violence as we know it, or we only know violence when it enters into moral relations. And these relations are defined, he says, by law and justice. So this is kind of a, a tricky thing to grasp. And I'm going to admit that this, this text is really difficult. And I'm, I think I got it. I think I know what's going on here. But, you know, in case I normally say this at the end, but if I you know, I'm going to say anything wrong. I'd really like to hear about it. But to understand this claim that violence only exists when it enters into moral relations, we, I think, can better grasp that if we consider the animal world, where if we see an animal inflict harm upon another animal, we don't tend to say, oh, what violence, you know, we just kind of accept it as being uh, part of the natural order of things. And this happens, you know, from my own perspective and i want to highlight that this is what i tend to see if an animal strikes another animal or bites another animal or whatever i just accept that as being part of the way of the world and if two animals of the same species are fighting one another i just take that to be you know what goes on in the world but when two humans fight or when a human you know inflicts harm upon another human uh you know i wince i have i have trouble with that and I associate that with this thing called violence that we have, for some reason, come to uh, acknowledge. Now, for a little bit more of a discussion on that, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche's book on the genealogy of morality takes this problem on in a you know in a little bit more detail, and I've done that on here in case you don't want to go and read the whole thing. Uh, but anyway, so logs or sorry violence exists in his words when it enters into moral relations so because of this and because these moral relations are defined by law and justice it appears as though violence is imminent so imminent as in inside of it is a part of law and justice because law and justice 
give it a kind of breathe life into violence and into our capacity to recognize harm as violence because there is associated with violence a, cer a certain uh, a moral judgment kind of moral criticism that we're going to get into more toward the end here so that kind of explains to him why in in the name of law or through the perspective of law violence has not been able to be fully criticized you know a critique of violence and that is because violence is actually part of law violence is housed within law how violence sets the conditions for law which law can then you know uh, set the conditions for violence and it's kind of like you know what comes first the chicken or the egg situation uh, which we'll get into a little bit more as we go on so he considers here two forms of, of law branches of law and they are natural law and positive law so natural law suggests that if the ends are justified so are the means so what that says is that if we arrive at a conclusion that we can accept uh, that we see is justified then whatever means were, were undertaken to arrive at that conclusion are justified now in distinction not not an antithesis but just by way of distinction positive law on the other hand suggests that if the means are justified so are the ends so it follows through positive law that if the means are justified, then therefore the ends must be justified. Whereas with natural law, we don't really know if the means are justified until we've arrived at a conclusion. Now, natural law suggests quite broadly that something like violence uh, is, is natural, that violence exists as a part of a natural order. And positive law is concerned primarily with the kind of um, laws that emerge through human intervention, laws that come about through legislation, through, you know, the social contract, through human agreement, things like that. Now, Benjamin here is more interested in positive law because, you know, it is the one that is concerned with humans and what humans have agreed upon. Uh, to, you know, in some cases, it's, it's tacit. So it, it's not like we come out and say these laws are there but we nevertheless um, accept them to be so. Now, both of these forms of law validates and justifies the existence of violence. So natural law does it by assessing if the ends were justified, as we already said, um, while positive law does it by assessing if the means were uh, legally sanctioned, if they were you know, properly, properly done. So for example, let's say that um, uh, let's take Donald Trump as just an example here. In terms of positive law, Donald Trump, as yet, as, as far as we know, or as far as the courts have decided, has not committed any crimes. So we then, via positive law, vis-a-vis -vis positive law, can suggest that he is, you know, uh, a just person. He is, he is just in terms of that particular... Um, set of rules, that particular set of laws, because he, he follows them, even though, you know, many of us might think, oh, well, there's, there's a whole lot wrong with what is going on here. So it's in that way that uh, the means, although they might be justified, they might exist within a certain legal setting, and they might be, you know, more or less, you know, we might accept them more or less, it doesn't necessarily follow that their conclusions that their ends 
are justified, at least for us. But for positive law, because the means were justified, then therefore the ends are justified. So that's just a kind of exposition into these two kinds of a law. And in either case, it is impossible to find a kind of true critique of violence within these forms of law because violence is within it. Violence is found within these forms of law. So these laws control and mandate violence, and they can only do that by harnessing it and by controlling it. Not to mention the fact that many of these laws, if not all laws, come into power, come into uh, realization through violence, through revolutionary violence, through um, other kinds of you know, authoritative violence, through colonial violence, or whatever other kind of you know, violent, violent acts, violent, violent acts, wow, can be done. So the law tries to maintain a monopoly on violence. That is, it tries to control uh, violence so that it can only conduct it itself. So we could think of the state here, where the state condemns violence in almost all forms until it is in the interest of the state. So then we see things like drone strikes. Then we see things like wars being conducted. Then we see things like mass incarceration. Then we see things like police violence, right? So violence is tolerated if it is done in the name of, you know, the state, if the state accepts it to be so. So the military is probably the strongest appendage of the law. That is, it is the law par excellence. It is able to enact violence in the name of the law. And what it does is preserve the law through force. Now that brings us to another point here, that the law has two functions or or the law is comprised of kind of two moments it is comprised of the moment of its being made it coming into fruition and then there's every subsequent moment of it trying to be preserved so when someone takes uh control or when a when a political body takes control let's say in the form of a revolution it will set out its own laws and these laws will necessarily conflict with the previous laws. So let's say there was a tyrant, and this tyrant is overthrown by a revolution. What must happen is the laws that that tyrant had implemented have to be overthrown, lest we see the exact same situation repeat itself. Now, what that means is that we are going to enter a totally new kind of paradigm of lawmaking that must then be preserved. So a new kind of military might, a new kind of coercive, hegemonic, um, disciplinary structure must be emerged to maintain the new laws. And the military is just one such institution that does this because it subordinates individuals to the law. So it might seem as though Benjamin is being really critical. And I think he is. Because I think that he's very skeptical of any, um, any attempt to supplant or replace one set of laws with another in the name of like mitigating or reducing violence will only replicate that violence in some respect because we are still working within the confines of law, which by the end of the essay, he's going to try to oppose something to the law, what he calls divine law to legal law or the kind of law we see here. 
Now, he does provide a little bit of an exception to this, where he says that to oppose the death penalty is to oppose the foundations of the law itself, which is interesting. And it's interesting because he's critical of attempts to to oppose, you know, military might, where the pacifists might say, oh, well, the military is the, um, I guess, the violent arm of the law. And if we can just undo the military, then violence will disappear as though violence is not imminent. That is within the law itself. Now, he says that to critique the death penalty actually houses some kind of potential. And that is because the death penalty is really the kind of crowning moment of violence within the law. And it is where laws are revitalized in the death penalty, where when someone is killed, that is someone who has inflicted harm, ostensibly inflicted harm on the social body or against the a particular political order, by putting them to death, we are seeing the, I guess, establishment or reestablishment of the law's might and uh, or through the demonstration of its kind of punitive capacity in its most extreme form. Whereas like the military, for instance, you know, when it enacts its uh, power overseas or in, in other places, isn't necessarily a spectacular function. It doesn't it doesn't serve the end of maintaining the law because the military often works um, in ways so as to remain like kind of hidden. So maybe the secret police here. Uh, and keep in mind, he was writing this in the early 20s. I think this was 21 when this came out. So we're dealing with, you know, these kinds of arrangements at that time. Now, he considers the special place held by the police in this setting or in relation to the law, where he says that the police hold a kind of special position. The police are less an extension of the law than they are the quantitative means by which the law enacts its will, so against the public. But because the police are, you know, the boots on the ground in everyday life, whereas the military, you know, the military would be in other parts of the world or would only come in in very specific situations and because of their might would just kind of steamroll everything and that would be it. Because the the police is like always there, always present, the police actually undergo adaptations by being in proximity to the people it is meant to legislate. So in that way, it takes on its own lawmaking function. So it is, don't get me wrong, it is an extension of the will of the law, but it has a certain malleability to accommodate new situations for it to be more effective, more effective than the law itself, at controlling people, at mandating how people should be. So it is in this sense both a lawmaker and a law preserver. So this is how he characterizes it. He says its power is formless, that is police. Its power is formless, like it's nowhere uh, tangible, all-pervasive, ghostly presence in the life of civilized state. 
and they are the sign then for him of the greatest conceivable degeneration of violence. Now that's the kind of a special place reserved for the police. Now to return more broadly to the discussion of violence, uh, he says that if violence does not serve the end of lawmaking nor preserving, then it loses all validity. So in that way, uh, a totally nonviolent resolution, in his words, of conflicts can never lead to a legal contract. So you need violence to open up these possibilities for legal contracts, for, for uh, law. And if an institution loses sight of its violent ethos, its kind of violent character, it, for Benjamin, falls into decay. And he uses the example of parliaments that have lost sight of this their, their violent origins and their violent practices, and by virtue of that, have fallen into decay. Now, it's important to recognize that he says nonviolent resolutions are possible, but they're only possible between private citizens, really. And it try, the state, that is, tries to extend these nonviolent moments to all possible violent ones that are not conducted in the name of the state. So you have, uh, like in the case of the general strike, he says that um, it is turned into a nonviolent protest lest the people might set the factories on fire. And they do this so as to mitigate you know, the possible harms that might be done to the state or to the lawmaking apparatus. But this strike is kind of vague, and he takes the time to kind of uh, taxonomize or, or uh, break up this idea of the strike into two camps, two possible strikes, where there is the political strike and then there's the pro proletarian general strike. So the political strike, he says, maintains the law. It shifts power between the hands of the powerful, so it does very little to actually change anything. It is simply a kind of uh, pressure valve situation to try to keep people generally complacent with their position in life. And the proletarian general strike, on the other hand, opposes the law, presents a challenge to the current situation of the law. And it does this, interestingly, through kind of nonviolent means. And this is interesting. So he says that, and, and because he's already said that the law and violence are associated, he says that the power of the proletarian general strike is found in the fact that it is not violent. Therefore, it does not, it is not simply a mirror of the law itself. And it radically then opposes the law because it opposes the logic of violence that is um, inexorably tied up to or with the law. Whereas the, the political strike, the one that was considered um, to extend the law, is powerful precisely because it extends the law. It's, it, it's not just powerful, it's violent because it extends the law. So he says that lawmaking then is essentially is power making. And this is interesting because it would seem as though law would only come about after power has been um, attained. So you attain power, and once you have attained power, you can then determine the rules of the land, right? You can then determine what people should do and how, you know, how they should do it. So violence in that way kind of potentiates power. So a person uses violence to take power. They can then, you know, through that originary violence, use it now to make law and then preserve that law through more violence. 
Now, when we're dealing with kind of liberal, humanistic uh, ideas about the law, you know, we think of maybe the, the Enlightenment. We might think of like liberal democracy emerging, uh, the idea of rights being founded. This, all this for Benjamin is just a big smokescreen to cover the fact that the law is bound up with violence. As though this idea called rights for, uh, for Benjamin isn't anything other than an effort to maintain people in a kind of uh, willing subordination, you know, in, in a kind of uh, an, an oppressive, under an oppressive state apparatus so that they could be better controlled. And this goes all the way back for him to, you know, the most ancient myths where the gods would exact power and then implement order, implement law. And it is so in this way that legal law, legal law, the law as we know it, has mythic origins. Now, there might be for him a way to oppose this mythic law with a pure, what he calls a pure, immediate violence. And this is what he calls divine violence that is law-destroying. Now, I want to read a little section here from uh, the bottom of 249, where he says that if mythic violence is law-making, divine violence is law-destroying. If the former sets boundaries, the latter boundlessly destroys them. If mythic violence brings at once guilt and retribution, divine power only expiates, that is, it, it absolves people of guilt, removes guilt. And if the former threatens... The latter strikes. If the former is bloody, the latter is lethal without spilling blood. Which might seem strange. Like, how can you have lawmaking, this kind of divine violence, that doesn't spill blood? And that is just because it's a kind of submission to a total rule. God's will, pretty much. And God enacts its might through kind of annihilatory force. It just disappears things it doesn't like almost. So whereas mythic violence is blood power over mere life for its own sake, or sorry, is bloody power <laughs> over mere life for its own sake, divine violence is pure power over all life for the sake of the living, which is akin essentially to annihilation. Now, there have been critiques of this. Derrida is one such person whose essay I'll probably do on here at some point, in which he says that, you know, this appreciation or this applause of divine violence, which is a kind of violence that spills no blood, that is just uh, an erasure almost of existing if you fail to abide by its rule, seems to share a haunting similarity to what we would see or what the world would see some 16, 17, you know, 20 years after uh, Benjamin published this essay with the Holocaust. And the Holocaust is one place where there, you know, blood isn't really spilled. People are just liquidated. People are erased from the face of the earth. So we have to be very, uh, it's a very scary thing that Benjamin seems to be applauding here. Uh, now, we want to extend an olive branch to him, uh, and he tries to kind of anticipate 
this kind of criticism. So he addresses the criticism that divine violence justifies one's attempt to attain kind of complete divine power to kill without impunity. So let's say there was a tyrant that absolutely ruled the earth with a kind of pure panoptic turned into carceral system where let's say every human being was equipped at from birth with a kind of microchip that would like instantly kill them if they committed a crime of a certain caliber. Uh, that might be an example of divine violence. How do we not, with Benjamin's words, justify such an action? And he says that such an action would be impossible because we would have to follow this idea of divine violence to its conclusion. And its conclusion would be, and he just, you know, calls upon the Bible here, thou shalt not kill, shalt not kill, as though the Bible is what um, he was he was really referring to here, which I, I got to admit, when I was reading it before that moment, I didn't at all think about the Bible in this way. And of course, he was... Um, he was a devout, I, th I believe he was devout, uh, uh, Jewish person living in, at the time here, he's probably, she's probably in Germany. Um, and I didn't, wasn't really anticipating that because, you know, I don't necessarily have recourse to look at the Bible for any solutions to anything. But he says that if we follow this divine violence argument to its logical conclusion, it will lead to no violence because it's a kind of total rule according to the Ten Commandments, essentially, which, you know, we any one of us atheists out there could certainly have a problem with. But anyways, so from this point, just before he concludes, he goes on a little tangent, uh, pretty much saying that we should we shouldn't base this commandment on a belief that all life is sacred. So the idea that thou shalt not kill uh, and it, and, and, and therefore that it should not be uh, harmed, that his life shouldn't be harmed because even violence can still be justified in the case of, for example, self-defense. Uh, and he extends this to like plants and animals where uh, if we take life to be sacred, it would then follow that all plant, life is sacred and all animal life is sacred. Uh, but he says that this doesn't, this argument does not preclude the possibility that doesn't, uh, doesn't um, remove the possibility of enacting violence in these kind of individual manifestations. Like, let's say if I am being mauled by a bear, and I manage to overcome the bear, which, like, let's be real, I would not. Um, that act would not go against this kind of divine violence because he's talking about it, I believe, in much more uh, general, in a much more general way. Uh, so then, yeah, he concludes by remarking that the laws preserving appendages, like the military, for example, essentially risk bringing, bringing about the end of the law, which is interesting because it threatens hostile counterviolence. So let's say we have a state system in which the military is so proficient. And one film that we might relate to this, if anyone has seen it, would be like Minority Report, where people, um, you know, uh, certain people have the capacity to look to the future and they can predict when people are going to commit crimes even before they commit them. 
what that does is it removes the possibility for violence. It removes the possibility for counter-violence. And so what we enter is a, is a state of kind of pure positivity, one that seeks to do away with all the violence. And what that means then, as he kind of prophet, prophetically says here, it would mark the end of the law because we know we need violence to maintain the law. And if we get rid of it, then there goes the law. So the difficulty then in all of this is recognizing the moments when divine violence kind of rears its head or kind of perks its ears uh, to see an opportunity to emerge or what he calls sovereign violence because it is so alien to what we know violence to be. Now, he just kind of brings that up in the very last line, this idea of sovereign violence. So let me just explain that for a second, at least what I think is going on. Um, divine violence is opposed to everything that we know uh, being traced all the way back to mythic violence, or which, which then forms into what we know today to be the law. It is radically opposed to that. So it is separate, sovereign, if you will. It is free of the confines of our present understanding of the law. And so it is in that way that we can understand it as being sovereign, at least I believe. Uh, and that makes it all the more difficult to recognize because, and even methodic, even methodologically, no. Even methodly, I don't know why my brain is shutting off. Even with our method of seeing, the lens through which we see the world is in many ways determined by our understanding of the law as it manifests itself today. So it's very difficult to imagine the world otherwise. And because of that, we don't even perceive divine law or divine violence. We might not even recognize it at all because we do not have the proper equipment to recognize it. And it is in that way that if the law recognizes it, it might actually try to kind of, you know, extend its tentacles into it to make it part of mythic violence, to make it part of legal violence, and to evacuate it of any radical potential. But yeah, that's pretty well it. Um, I should say, if anyone can contribute to currently what's going on in the world, and I guess this is a little bit of a topical uh, essay, certainly with what is going on with Black Lives Matter um, and all of the systemic violence against people of color, against marginalized, all marginalized communities from trans people of color to just to um, pretty much anyone who isn't a white man or white woman. Uh, consider doing what you can if you thought, hey, David, you did a good job here. I'm going to go to your Patreon and throw you some dollars. Defer that to another time. And for now, give some to people that need it more than me, uh, because that would be really great. Um, but in terms of the essay here, if I did anything wrong, let me know. Uh, and I'd like to learn more. But yeah, on that note, take care.